there's one chapter where I went out to a number of artisanal diamond mines in the rural part of the country and we sat down with a number of the children working in, in, in the diamond mine with, with Didier, the artist, and they're describing to us about the day that the militia came and to their village and killed their parents, so we sort of talk about that. And then we sort of segue to modern day where we see him living and working actually in this open cast mine and how he might be, you know, working under the blazing sun for 10 hours a day for several weeks before he finds even the smallest of diamonds and how the cost of that had to be split amongst the crew. If he can't go back to school, they can't get an education. So, you know, this will probably be it for their lives, working working in the pits. So, yeah, so it's, it's trying to give this sort of human context to a very complicated conflict. I think the comic format is, is a great way to do that. Mark is a journalist who has developed a series of graphic novels with people in extraordinarily tough situations. These include kids affected by conflict in the Central African Republic, returned combatants of the Lord's Resistance Army in northern Uganda, and people targeted for witchcraft in Nigeria, amongst other topics. We talk about the process of building these stories responsibly with local artists. We also talk about the purpose why new approaches are so valuable on these issues, which can seem almost unimaginable to many people and consequently tend not to get much traction in the news media. What's also interesting is that Mark has bootstrapped these projects with small grant funding entirely alongside his reporting day job at the BBC. So we talk a bit about the current media landscape, the commissioning process, why reporting and crises does tend to be a bit samey, and how it's possible to find the wriggle room to do more interesting stuff. This is One Step Forward. My name is Ian Quick. Please enjoy. I do usually start these in the same place. If you are meeting someone socially uh, in the UK, in this case, at the, at the pub at a uh, wedding, you know, whatever. How do you describe this work that we're about to talk about? Yeah, um, it's it's often met with uh, a raised eyebrow when I explain to people, be it with colleagues or friends over a coffee, about the fact that often my freelance journalism projects are graphic novels because I think to many people's minds, people equate graphic novels with with comics with you know, with the world of make-believe, you know, Superman, Batman. I think they're quite surprised to think that graphic novels can be told, can be, can be used to tell non-fiction stories, particularly, you know, issues like the impact of kids in conflict, Nigerian kids being accused of witchcraft. I think they, they find it difficult to sort of relate the medium with covering that type of topic. And even when I'm pitching stories to editors as well, when I say, oh, you know, I want to do such and such topic, but in a graphic novel format. That also is often met with a raised eyebrow because, well, for, for two reasons. One is because, again, editors or friends will think it's a format that means just elements of the story are going to be made up, which is obviously a, a, a big no-no in journalism. Second of all, I've had editors who think that calling it a graphic novel means it's going to be graphic in nature. So, you know, it will be you know, sort of Tarantino-esque in terms of its coverage of uh, and display of violence. So, so that, you know, when I when I explain to people that, yeah, typically I'm, I'm sort of portraying a lot of these stories, a lot of these projects I do in the, in the graphic novel format, it is met with a bit of incredulity. But, but you know, I, I, I can point to other examples that, you know, my, my work is based on. And, and, you know, and people have heard of the work called Mouse. I believe it's the, it was the first graphic novel to actually win a Pulitzer Prize for literature. And that was basically his account of his interactions with his, with his grandfather's experience of the Holocaust. So that's, you know, many people have heard of that graphic novel, but it's still, I guess, not that widely known because, you know, when I explain to people that I'm, I mean, there's many different terms that you can use for it, be a, you know, a, a comic journalist or a, a graphic novelist. Um, a lot of people, you know, don't quite know what that means, and and also they're not quite sure, you know, what what that is even going to look like. Often the 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 way that I I try and 
bridge that gap now is that because I've got a certain body of work that it's easier just to sort of show somebody an example and then and then I'll sort of say, ah, okay, I, okay, I, I, get, I get what it is that you're doing now. You have produced five or six sort of major pieces of, of work, which you've broadly described as graphic novels, so it's a little bit mm-hmm. more complicated than that. Could you just set up quickly what those are? Okay, I'll, I'll try and remember them all off the top of my head. <laughs> it's not a test. The, the first graphic novel I produced was called Graphic Memories, which was an interactive take on the stories of female child soldiers who had returned after many years living with the Lord of Resistance Army in North Uganda. I've also produced graphic novels, one on female genital mutilation in Tanzania, Another that was also based in Tanzania, but was specifically about child marriage and the effects that child marriage had on a particular young girl. One of the biggest projects I've worked on is the one that's been published as a physical book is uh, House Without Windows, which is set in Central African Republic and looking at how the ongoing conflict has impacted the lives of children um, across the country. And obviously there are, there are themes of impact on uh, health and education and uh, issues like that. The most recent one I worked on was looking at how, uh, sadly, how children in the Niger Delta region of Nigeria are being accused of um, being witches. And so typically that, you know, that, well, that's looking at the influence not only of Pentecostal churches, but also the role that Nollywood movies have had um, in terms of people's beliefs. And just to contextualize that a little bit, if we're talking about, say, Central African Republic, I mean, what does a scene uh, in one of these graphic novels look like? What is the, the sort of course of events or the, the kind of story that's being told? So, you know, rather than just being fairly pedestrian, socio-political uh, analysis of, of what's happened uh, and continues to happen in, in the conflict, I wanted to obviously show it through the eyes of a child. And so there's one chapter where I'm looking at the, the impact on education. So I went out to um, a number of artisanal diamond mines in the rural part of the country and basically sat down with a number of the children working in, in, in the diamond mine with, with Didier, the artist, and they're describing to us about the day that um, the militia came and to their village and killed their parents. So we sort of talk about that. Um, and then we sort of segue to, to modern day where we see him basically, li- well, living and working actually in this open cast mine. And, and just the challenges um, that he has, you know, trying to support himself, how he might be, you know, working under the blazing sun for 10 hours a day for several weeks before he finds even the smallest of diamonds and how... The cost of that had to be split amongst the crew, and how uh, basically his his education has been interrupted. So, you know, these kids are maybe 12, 13, 14, and they basically can't go back to school. They can't get an education. So, you know, this will probably be it for their lives, working working in the pits. So, yeah, so it's 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 trying to sh- sort of show, trying to give this sort of human context to a very very complicated conflict. And again, I think the comic the comic format is a great way to do that. I guess the logical follow-up question would be if Art Spiegelman is having these conversations with his grandfather and that sort of provides a, a personal entry point and, and perhaps mm-hmm. the medium makes it easier in a way to tell a story that is that is personal. What was the appeal of that approach for you and I know there are differences between these different pieces of work and sort of how they're executed but opting for a graphical medium using some photography but mostly a, a, a graphic novel kind of medium as you say what was the start point for that for you I, I, I was always a big fan of Siegelman's uh, mm. Mouse um, and I was also uh, I've also been a long time fan of the work of another journalist called Joe Sachko who is basically really the, the godfather of graphic novel journalism. He's produced such books as Safe Area Garage, which is uh, visual sort of reporting of the Bosnian genocide. Mm-hmm. So I'd always been a, a real fan of, of the medium to tell these nonfiction stories. And my background actually is 
before I got into journalism about seven, eight years ago, I had a, I used to be a computer programmer. And, and so I sort of had this pre midlife crisis. And so I wanted to try and find a way to use my technical skills, my, my photographic skills to try and create a sort of 2.0 version of the, of the physical graphic novel to try and engage, you know, a wider audience online, you know, a wider demographic as well to try and interest people in these stories that they maybe otherwise wouldn't have heard of. Um, and, and typically the, the graphic novels that I've produced, it's not, it's not only illustration. I try and combine photography and embedded video, uh, be it traditional video or 360 video as well to try and make it as an immersive and powerful experience as possible. And, and, and typically the stories I'm telling too are, are in sort of parts of Africa that people don't know about or haven't heard about. Um, and so I find the medium really engaging you know it, it will sort of draw people into a topic that maybe they wouldn't otherwise have have clicked on to, to read as well how is it viewed from the point of view of the the subject or rather the the protagonist i should say because the the work does tend to be quite um narrative in style is there something about it that is more accessible or easier in some sense for protagonists and what are very uh, well very violent and and disruptive and unpleasant in many ways stories what is it like from their point of view do you think uh it's a good question um i mean certainly with the with the first ever graphic novel project i did which was um looking at the reintegration challenges facing female child soldiers in uganda when i was trying to explain uh, what it was I was trying to do, specifically regarding the format, uh, it was often met with with blank stares. Just tr- you know, just just trying to explain what it was I was trying to do. Obviously, that that has become easier for a couple of reasons. I mean, firstly, because now that I've got this body of work and I've got a physical book that's been published as well, you know, I can actually show them, and and again, people will sort of see it, and and and, and the penny will drop. They'll say, Ah, okay, I, I see what it is, it is that you're trying to do. Another factor for why it's become a bit easier is that um, where the budget allows, I typically like to try and travel uh, in country with a local artist. So if we're trying to explain the format, um, it's made easier by the fact that the artist is often sort of sketching some of their memories as, as, they're, as they're telling it. So, so that makes it a little bit easier for them to understand what it is that we're trying to do and often why we're asking for uh, so much detail as well, because, I mean, that's one challenge of this format is that as a journalist, I want it to be as accurate as possible. So often an interview can maybe take two or three times as long, because if we're talking about maybe a member of the anti-Balaka, we're sort of saying, and I will ask, okay, well, how, how many how many were there? What, what were they wearing? What was the weather like? What was the layout of your village? So all sorts of details like that. In the past, they may have been a bit confused as to why I'm asking all these really sort of intricate questions. But once they see that the artist is sketching during the interview and trying to get a, a picture in their mind's eye, they get what it is that we're doing. Um, and they, and they, they're obviously even giving real, real time feedback as well, sort of saying, Oh no, you know, maybe the village is a bit more like this, or no, the guy looks a bit more like this, or he had dreadlocks or, or what have you. So it's very much a sort of this interactive, collegial experience between subject and interviewer. Mm. There's a episode in uh, the Central African Republic in which uh, mm-hmm. one of the people that you talk to says, uh, well, street kids learn to, to deal in, in half-truths and in lies mm-hmm. due to having to navigate this very kind of you know, turbulent and, and very dangerous at a day-to-day level yeah. environment. Do you think that this format, this approach helps establish a truer narrative or, or a more complete narrative? Was that the was that one of the underlying motivations that something was kind of missing or too superficial in, in crisis reporting within air quotes as it's normally done? So in terms of if it's still sort of showing the the complete true and in inverted quotes um, story, I mean you, fa- you face the same issues as with TV reporting or radio reporting in the sense that you're taking somebody's story at face value and, and obviously I will try and cor- corroborate their story 
through additional interviews. But I, th- I think I think uh, one one benefit of the graphic novel is that you're able to show the, the modern day. Well, the way that I do the, the graphic novel, anyway, you're able to show uh, the modern day uh, part of their stories, be it in the example of the street kids, you know, how they're where they're living and how they're trying to make a living. But through the illustrations, you're also able to com- complete the story. Basically, you're able to go back in the past and through illustration show show the narrative up until present day, which is obviously something that I think is harder to, harder to do with with other mediums unless you're sort of doing these sort of cheesy uh, reenactments. You know, it's it's one thing for somebody to narrate a story, but it's another thing to actually um, illustrate it and 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 these illustrations making them as accurate as possible to sort of really sort of show you the sorts of experiences that, that these people have, have gone through. Mm. And it's certainly a a thicker narrative, an anthropologist would say. It's it's more mm-hmm. it's more contextualized and it's richer even if it's not necessarily trying to tell some sort of objective truth. It it certainly does a better job of of putting things in there in their wider context um, mm-hmm, than, mm-hmm. Than, than text, particularly for uh, people, protagonists who are, you know, not necessarily comfortable in with a, a, a more written culture or a more written way of, of mm-hmm. or even a videographic way of describing things. Absolutely. And I mean, and, and in terms of um, uh, comfort, I mean, it was quite an interesting experience. So I, ha- I had the luxury of being able to spend Five weeks in Central African Republic, and 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 being able to travel around with with a local artist called Didier Kasai, who is a fantastic human being as well as a, a fantastic illustrator. And um, one benefit of this is because obviously the focus of that project was looking at how uh, the ongoing conflict specifically has impacted children. And so some of the children that we're speaking to, be it street children or children who are working in diamond mines or who have witnessed violence obviously these these can be quite young quite vulnerable children children who are still grappling with having lost their parents or post-traumatic stress disorder so it, it's it's obviously quite challenge, challenging to interview them and well and, and even just the simple fact that some of the kids were maybe 10 12 so having a child sit down and, and concentrate for an hour or a couple of hours is the task in of itself so there, there were occasions where we were sat down with with a, a particular child, and and they were clearly a bit a bit shy and a bit reluctant to talk. Not only just because of the subject matter, but because you know it's a strange white foreigner who's asking them all these questions. So they were quite um, nervous, I think, and quite shy. So I remember the first time that this happened. So Didier, the artist, said, "You know, how about you know you go off and maybe uh, do." You know, take some photos of the, of, you know, where we are, or speak to some other people, and I'll, I'll stay here and and uh, and chat to, to the child. And so basically, what he would, you know, he had all these different sort of techniques that he would use, but he'd just try and build up a rapport with them and sort of maybe ask them, oh, you know, what's what's your favourite animal? And and let's say a pig, and so a draw a pig, and and sort of slowly um, build up something of a rapport with them, so that when I came back, sort of ten, fifteen minutes later, they were much more amenable to, you know, having uh, or conducting an interview. And, and, and I think also just because um, I think it was made easier because Didier himself has kids and he himself had lived and continues to live through conflict in the country as well. So he, you know, unlike myself, he, he can relate to the, the, the child's experience. You know, he's witnessed horrible things himself. Uh, his children have witnessed horrible things. So he, he, he had that sort of shared experience, that shared understanding of what it's like to live during this conflict, you know, which is something obviously that it's harder for myself to, to empathize with. So for all those reasons, you know, being able to, to travel with, uh, with a local artist and really collaborate on, on that particular project was, uh, you know, was a real boon. Mm. Yeah. One of the, the interesting features for me when I was sort of flicking through your body of work was the recurring figure of the, <laughs> The local artist, um, mm-hmm. the local partner that you worked with, and did seem mm-hmm. like uh, quite a central component of of the method, I guess. Yeah, and I mean, and, and that that was actually a very conscious decision because 
I didn't I didn't want myself to be in the comic. You know, this wasn't really, you know, in many ways, this wasn't my story to tell. Although Didier and I worked together and, uh, you know, we wrote it together, you know, this, this was, I would argue, more of his story to tell. And I didn't want people to be distracted by the, the white uh, privileged journalist uh, in the comic as well. So that that was very much a conscious decision, whereas, for example, in the work of, um, and, and I mean, this isn't a criticism, but whereas in the work of Joe Sachko, he's always, you know, up front and centre uh, in, in the comics. But for me, this was a conscious decision that, yeah, I, I very much wanted Didier to be, to be front and centre and, and, and to basically serve as the narrative thread connecting together all these different chapters and um, places that we that we travel to and the different themes as well. Mm. Is there a market for them to continue with that kind of work? I'm sure there are many more, but like there's at least three or four core collaborators that, that jump out from the work. Do you know if they're able to keep doing that kind of work, that kind of approach, um, without international support, international funding, and, and, and all the rest of it? Yeah, it's um, to be completely honest, it's, 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 it's really tough for them. So... Didier has published a few books, but I know that typically his sort of bread and butter is doing illustrations for posters for local or international NGOs in the country. The Ugandan artist, Chris Mephidri, that I've collaborated with a couple of times, some of the sort of thing he's often doing work with NGOs, and and a lot of the time he's just having to make a living by doing construction work mm-hmm. or working in the local market, things like that. So it, it is really very much a challenge. Mm. That having been said, certain countries do have more of a um, booming comic book culture. So one example is Nigeria. So there's actually a couple of businesses there that are doing quite well, um, you know, churning out comic books. So that yeah, there's one example in Lagos called Comic Repu- Republic. So it, it does depend on the country, but for the, with, certainly with the artists that I've worked with, you know, trying to do this as a full-time salaried job is it's, it is quite challenging. Mm. I was looking through, and speaking of that, I was when I was looking through your own your own body of work. What was striking is that at the outset you were very much doing very much a working journalist in Canada at that time, doing uh, predominantly local stories mm-hmm. then a few sort of print-based things in uh, in mozambique for example but then of course you did the the this project in uganda with um, mm-hmm. returned combatants and i'm quite curious how you managed to get that off the ground almost as proof of concept i'm sure the later projects were also difficult but that first one must have been monumentally difficult to get going what compelled you to do that and how did you make it happen yeah it was um it was very very difficult so it basically took me about two years worth of applying for different grants um before i was finally successful in securing a grant to, to do that project because mm-hmm. uh because that you know that they're, they're not cheap by the time you factor in obviously travel accommodation the artist's salary tends to be you know a big bulk of the cost as well. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not something that you can really self-finance because it's sad to say that often these projects you don't get paid a lot to do. So without these grants, you'd basically be doing them at a loss. Basically, I, I, I was trying, as I said, for a couple of years to try and get funding. And I think what helped in the end was I developed a, a proof of concept. So on a previous trip, that was just paid through my own finances. Um, I basically did, did some interviews, took some photos, and I had the Ugandan artist just do some illustrations for free, explaining that this was basically, we were having the struggle with, with funders and, and I think editors as well. So, you know, I want to do this graphic novel about return combatants, um, but I want to do it in illustration form. And, I, I, and typically the editors I was dealing with, they tend to be these sort of, sort of older traditional sort of grey-haired uh, generation that maybe didn't quite even know what a graphic novel was. So I think they were reluctant to commission something. So I programmed 
a sort of custom-made web page. It wasn't as slick as some of the, the ones that I've done more recently, but basically just as a proof of concept to sort of show, you know, this is how it would work, um, combining illustration photography with videos that you can click on within the panels. And I included a link to that prototype in a particular funding application. And I think that did help that people could say, oh, okay, we can see how this is going to work. And, uh, you know, with an online audience, it could really engage an audience uh, in, in this topic. And so, you know, I'm eternally grateful to um, the European Journalism Center who funded that initial project because, you know, honestly, without without that, it, it wouldn't, that original project wouldn't have come to pass. And I doubt very much that the, you know, the other projects I've done probably wouldn't have happened uh, as well because the the first Uganda project was, was really successful. It ended up actually winning uh, a World Press Photo Award for multimedia. So mm-hmm. I think... That you know sort of really established it. It basically became a great calling card for me because if you know when I was applying for additional grants after that one, I could sort of say, well, there's this one that I've just done. It's just won this uh, prestigious international award, so you know there's clearly a market for it. But let's forget the um, format for a moment. Why? Mm-hmm. Why Uganda? Why returned combatants there? Um, it was. That, that particular story um, actually came out of um, an assignment I was doing in Canada. As I, as I mentioned before, I, I, I had this, what I refer to as my pre-midlife crisis in my early 30s. I'd been a programmer for about 15 years. And after spending some time in Rwanda with my wife, I decided that I wanted to go back, that I wanted to tell people stories, that I wanted to go back to Canada and to do a, a master's degree in journalism. And it was as a result of an assignment that I happened to be doing in Canada on uh, the challenges facing former child soldiers trying to emigrate to Canada, that I was speaking to an expert who said, you know, if you if you really want to report on a story that hasn't been done before or is underreported, it's basically about the challenges facing child soldiers once they come back from the bush, uh, and specifically female child soldiers. So sure enough, you know, I, I did some online research and, and found that really not a lot had been written about that topic. And so I think as any reporter, um, you know, often you're, you're, you're trying to look for stories that haven't been told before. So that, that was really the, the initial motivation uh, for, for, for that particular story. And what were you... What were you thinking at that time in terms of intended audience uh, for that story and as you say an underreported story what where did you envisage that going because it's a it's a format that as we we said is, is is kind of largely about the narrative and and the personal stories and experiences and in a way about empathy so i'm, I'm mm-hmm. curious sort of what you had in mind as the outcome you were looking for and the audience you were looking for with that with that product yeah, I mean, certainly in terms of outcome, I was wanting to, you know, as a journalist, you're trying to educate people about, um, you know, global issues. And although a lot of the stories that were told in that Uganda project are fairly dark and depressing, um, there's also positive sides to it. So often with a lot of the African stories that I'm telling, I'm trying to also combat this um very sort of negative stereotype of the continent as well to sort of show that, you know, there are local organizations helping people who are dealing with these issues that a lot of these people are trying to, trying to make the the best of what what they can. It's not all, you know, it's not all about hunger and conflict and what have you. So I'm trying to sort of get across that side um, of of these countries as well. In terms of audience, certainly trying to target, I guess, a young audience with, with the sort of graphic novel format. And on that note, some people have sort of said, oh, you know, the use of the graphic novel format, it, it's just a gimmick or a fad. But my my counter-argument to that is often, call it what you want, but if it engages a new audience and these global issues or these underreported issues, then, you know, at the end of the day, who cares? But, I mean, I, I, would, I would like to think that, um, despite the format, I'd, I'd like to think that anybody, be it, you know, a, a teenager or uh, somebody in their sixties would still want to uh, to en- to engage in, in in the format. Um, that that would be my hope. Do you 
do you know what kind of audiences have accessed it? Is it possible to get insight into that, you know, without getting into wonky sort of metrics questions? How, <laughs> How how would one know if uh, new audiences were being were being reached, or did you have feedback of that kind that that spurred you on to do more of it? I know, I know media outlets certainly have analytics tools that will tell you sort of breakdown of age, gender, um, number of views, engaged minutes, things like that. Unfortunately, however, as a, as a freelancer, a lot of the, the outlets that, that have taken these projects, I don't have access to those specific. Mm-hmm. Detailed analytics. Um, I only really know about things in terms of number, you know, numbers of views. Certainly, in terms of number numbers of views, that I, I know that they've done really, really well. The most recent one that I did for um, for Al Jazeera and BBC on kids being accused of witchcraft in Nigeria, I know that you know we're talking mil- millions of views. So, so certainly, it's, it's it's a format that seems to to, to resonate. So I should also say, in terms of impact in the countries themselves. I did one graphic novel in Tanzania, which was focusing on female genital mutilation or FGM and child marriage. And with that particular project, I always knew that I wanted it to be available in English and in Swahili, the local language. So a local audience could could also read it. But the NGO that I collabor- collaborated with on that project asked permission to be able to print a physical copy of it mm. with a view that they could use it as a sort of a pedagogical resource in the communities because they would basically print it out and hand it around to parents in these remote rural villages, essentially just sort of trying it and, um, I mean, without sounding patronizing, trying to educate them as to why, you know, as to the, the pernicious effects of making their child be cut and to marry, you know, marrying them off at such a young age. So in terms of, yeah, this sort of educational tool, had a really, I think, strong impact in Tanzania and also the, the witchcraft project in Nigeria. I know that similarly, the local branch of UNICEF is looking at translating it into the local dialects, again, with a view to um, distributing it in schools and also to, to give copies to the local government, which arguably isn't doing enough to, to cut down on these witchcraft accusations as well. So, I mean, and, and to me, that, that that is probably more meaningful as a journalist, I think, than you know, numbers of clicks or eyeballs on an article. You know, having mm. trying to have you know real impact on the ground, as opposed to just you know getting your your piece tweeted, you know, x thousand, you know, x number of thousands of times. Indeed, um, indeed. I just listening to the examples that you gave there. The range of subjects is pretty diverse. We have uh, return combatants in Uganda, we have FGM in Tanzania, we have uh, experiences of sort of street kids and marginalized kids in Central African Republic. You've done other work on sex workers in Mozambique, for example. What, um, what ties these together? What's the, what's the common thread for you? Um, I, mean, I, I mean, certainly, I guess, and again, I mean, I, I, not for this to sound patronizing or because, you know, a, a lot of these communities, but in terms of the Mozambique uh, prostitutes, you know, in no way they were actually very empowered. But I mean, I'm, I guess I'm, I tend to gravitate, gravitate towards people who are disadvantaged, um, vulnerable. Um, these stories maybe aren't widely known. And so maybe the hope is that by publicizing what these people are going through, that Maybe it'll have some small ripple effect, be it through uh, donations to a charity or, or, or what have you. But, but yeah, I mean, I, I mean, it's very much a cliche, but, you know, trying to give a voice to the voiceless. The label is typically being used to uh, the format of 360 video. But I think, as you know, with 360 video and graphic novels, I mean, they've often been referred to as, a, as empathy engines. So, you know, this unique format that you know maybe is is a bit different uh is immersive that can try well sort of trying to maybe reach the path that other uh media can't reach um probably i can try and back that up with a with a clear-cut example so with the central african graphic novel that was quite a unique project because i used 360 video in that project as well so basically uh, there's one chapter where I'm talking about 
how many kids, as a result of their parents being killed, they're having to work in these extremely dangerous conditions in these artisanal diamond mines. And and so, you know, you have illustrations and you have photos, but you unless you're there, I mean, it's really very difficult to comprehend the scale of these mines and just... And, you know, just the hard conditions that these, you know, 10, 12-year-old kids are working in. So on the pages where you see the illustrations or photos, you can click on a video icon and that pops up on the screen and basically you see, you see a 360 video. So basically what that means is that using your mouse, you can you can look, you know, 360 degrees around horizontally and, and also vertically. And so you really do feel like you're there. And this, you know, also if you watch these videos using special 360 goggles you hear digging and you look behind you and you see these children behind you digging looking for, for, for diamonds so i think that's the great thing with, with these formats is that you know just trying to immerse people in these environments and and to try and sort of break down often what i, I see as a sort of you know empathy gap hopefully make people want to to take action even if it's just through sort of donating to a, to a charity or something like that mm. I almost, I almost struggle to sort of position this genre-wise. <laughs> well, the the sort of crisis reporting or war reporting, you know, has a relatively well-established formula, a relatively sort of small group of people do it who all know each other. It's certainly not conventional foreign desk stuff. Do you have do you have peers? I mean, where? Where does where does this get located in in a newspaper or or uh, when it's commissioned? Sort of how did you pitch this within the the wider news ecosystem? Typically, when when you're pitching it, I mean it, it's typically going to be the the online editors that you're pitching mm. to. Just given the fact that it is multimedia, it's going to work best on their digital platforms. Um, now that has its own challenges because some. Some CMSs or content management systems of media outlets can be fairly basic, but certainly certain outlets have experimented with this format before, and they're the ones that I typically look to. So you've got innovative outlets like Guardian, Al Jazeera, Huffington Post. So in terms of the pitching process, I'll, I'll sort of tend to reach out to those organisations first. You know, reaching out to the online editor. Mm-hmm. You know, having having said that, I'm always keen to try and get it in print as well. And again, it often depends on how receptive the the foreign editor is for the uh, for the paper is. So with the Toronto Star, often what we would do is not, not print the whole comic, obviously, because you know, they tend to be quite long, but print maybe dozen panels of a particular anecdote in a chapter and then superimpose on some of those uh, QR codes, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with QR codes, but they basically look mm-hmm. like a little funny square barcode so you just imagine you're, you're having breakfast in the morning you've got your paper there you're having your cereal and you're reading this the printed panel mm-hmm. but then over this qr code you can just hover your uh, smartphone over it and then up pops um either a traditional video or 360 video so it's this sort of um sort of augmented reality experience that you know you're reading about this kid in the diamond mine and suddenly you know as you're eating the cereal you've got this kid talking to you about, yeah, what it's like to, to be working in an open mine. Um, mm. So, so I, th- I think I, I think in a way, you know, the fact that you've got that sort of physical paper plus the multimedia, I think, I think it's a really sort of powerful combination. And, you know, it can, you know, it can even be, and it's successful anywhere, be it, you know, on, you know at home or on the bus or, or wherever. It's sort of an interesting combination of the old and the new. My mind goes back to the dreadful phantom <laughs> <laughs> comics and <laughs> what have you, which um, I did as a child read, but were uh, uh, certainly not written with a great deal of thought or care, and so right. we're not. <laughs> well, it's 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 kind of interesting to me to invert that right and have it be something that's very current and very serious and and factual, you know, mm-hmm. if narrative in style, um, but using a a in a way a very old mode of presentation. Yeah, and and I mean, and I should say as well. I mean, um, the the Central African book has been printed. Uh, it was last year. It came out as a, as a physical book. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, in, in French initially, but it's actually going to be coming out in English next April. 
And so I've been I've been contacted by people uh, at schools in France who are actually using it as a text, you know, in, in high schools, partly because, again, you know, it's teaching them about a former French colony. But the fact that it, it uses, you know, a new format like 360 to, to engage kids, you know, I feel like I'm dating myself, but, you know, kids nowadays, I think very much maybe do have a shorter attention span. And if it's not all singing or dancing, if it maybe doesn't involve an iPad, I think interest can, you know, doesn't wane quite quickly. So arguably, we're, we're again, trying to sort of maybe sort of bridge that gap by using not only the, the comic book format and, you know, and comic books are huge in France as well, but with, with this sort of marriage of new media as well, it's it's hopefully going to make them interested in, in you know, these global issues. Mm. Have you evolved the approach? You've done five or six of these now, mm-hmm. depending on how you mm-hmm. count. I mean, what have been the major points of learning in terms of the the process in country or in terms of the product and, you know, what, what works for a, perhaps a somewhat mainstream audience who doesn't know the issues super well? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, it's, there, there, there's not many people who who do this so you know it, it's really been mm. just learning by doing and learning from failure really <laughs> and so I, i've come to learn that it's really important to do as much work as you can before you even go to the country i mean and i mean that that sounds obvious in, in terms of the background reading and what have you and establishing potential interviewees before you go out to organizations that maybe have to facilitate your research so in terms of the graphic novel format, it's more to do with uh, basically storyboarding and you know brainstorming certain ideas with the artist before you even go out. And one one technique that I employ in many of the comics as well is this sort of what I call hybrid images. So whereby I'll maybe take a photo of inside a church, for example, where maybe an attack happened. Um, and then I will have the artist superimpose on the photo drawings of that event. So it's the sort of marriage between past and present. And, and you know, in terms of sort of symbolizing this, you know, how people remember something that happened in a particular place. So I'll, I'll, in terms of the storyboarding process, I'll need to know what sort of photographs or videos that I'll want to take in advance as well. So, so that's really, really important. In terms of other processes, a big one is in terms of actually writing and structuring the graphic novel after the field research. The the best way that I've done that is actually using Google Docs, uh, well, well, a Google spreadsheet, I should say, really. So the benefit of that is that um, you can you can work on a document at the same time, real time, as the artist. You know, I'll be sort of structuring um, the dialogue or the narration of the piece. And maybe making notes on uh, suggestions to the artist of what I'd like to see in that particular panel or that page. I'll also sort of suggest, you know, how many panels are on a particular page. And again, in real time, the the artist can see what I'm doing and and offer his own suggestions and notes as well. So, in the past, it was it was quite difficult because you know trying to establish Skype connections with the artist mm. uh, was a real pain because obviously in certain parts of Africa particularly in rural communities, the, the internet bandwidth is quite poor. So try, trying to you know, have a Skype conversation was, was literally impossible. But with, at least with this approach, using Google Spreadsheets, it, you know, it's, a, it's a lot easier to, to collaborate and being able to work even though you know, we're thousands of miles apart. Um, yeah, so I mean, I, I would say that those are probably the sort of, I mean, the, two of the biggest um, things that I've learned from, from Projects. Does it ever go wrong? The, the preparation. When you're dealing with this uh, very sensitive subject matter at a very sort of local level, has it ever gone a bit out of control? In in, in what sense? Uh, in the sense of a, a protagonist or an interview subject feeling like they're not, um, you know, adequately protected within the process or right, right. that there's you know intervention by somebody mm-hmm. else who has a stake mm-hmm. in it i mean it feels like mm-hmm. there must be many potential 
landmines in a in a metaphorical sense, perhaps in an actual yeah, sense. I mean, absolutely, and I mean, and I should make the point that again, I mean, in many ways, this is no different to what I call you know tr- traditional journalism. By that, I mean that you know when I'm interviewing very young, very vulnerable children, I always make sure, obviously, that they're comfortable, that they're consenting to the interview, but that that there's somebody from, for example, the local organisation that's helped facilitate the interview, or maybe a parent, that they're sitting in there, because I'm very conscious of not wanting to uh, re-traumatise an individual, and that I make it clear that at any time, obviously, they, they can finish the interview, or we take a break, or have you, so I'm very conscious of that. And, I mean, and, and um, you know, there, there have been instances where uh, a subject, at the end of an interview, they, they've had second thoughts, and, they, and they've said, you know what, I... I, I want to be anonymous. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, in, that that may have been an issue if, for example, if we're doing just a, you know, a straight traditional TV documentary that suddenly you've shot all this B-roll or these interviews with this person and suddenly they say, you know what, you can still tell my story, but I want it to be anonymous. It's, that's going to be a, a bit more of a challenge with how you do that because of all the pushes you've just taken. But the benefit of the graphic novel is it doesn't really matter because uh, you, you can still tell their story through illustrations and and obviously anonymize their appearance. So that's that, that's one good advantage of the format and, and one that obviously I, I've utilized a few times to tell people stories without maybe using their, their image in a photo or video. Hmm. Will you keep doing this? The process of securing grant funding for one-off projects is notoriously exhausting <laughs> um i mean is is that the model do you keep do you keep doing projects from time to time like this how do you how do you envisage this going forward yeah that's a good question i mean if i think to be honest if i could do this full time i would mm-hmm. the big challenge is, is yeah it's funding and and despite the success in terms of I mean, in terms of awards of the you know the projects, um, it's still incredibly hard to get editors to to, to commission them, um, and and I, I don't really know why that is. So typically, you know, these, these are funded through external grants, but it's becoming more and more of a challenge because there's fewer and fewer organisations who are um, offering these grants up. So, for example, I mentioned earlier the European Journalism Centre that used to do these innovation grants, um, and sadly they, they no longer have the funding to get to give those out. And that that was one of the big ones because they used to offer up to twenty thousand euros for a project, which you know is, is incredible. And so there's really only a handful of organisations now that will stump up that kind of money to be able to do you know, a project like this justice. So I mean, looking forward, you know, I'm, I'm still I'm still trying. To get funding to do these types of projects, and and there's a project right now that I'm I'm looking, you know, I've been looking at for the last nine months and so trying to get funding to do, and it's you know around homophobic violence in Ghana, um, and I think it's partly the format, I think it's partly the topic that maybe puts people off. I'm not sure, but it's 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 certainly one that I, I want to keep on. It's certainly a format that I, I still want to engage with in the future. It's just it's just trying to find the money to do it. Hmm. It must be difficult to combine with um, the ordinary work of a, a salaried journalist. I don't know if you are on salary. Well, well the, it is. I mean, uh, the yeah, ordinary I mean, career track, let's say, for a, for a journalist. Exactly. So, I mean, typically, I mean, my 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 day to day job for the last six years has been with the BBC, hmm. and so often, it's, you know, often it's it's been a challenge even within the organisation to try and get projects commissioned, and so. Because I do very much see these as um, as passion projects. That, in the case of the Central African project, I basically took five weeks off my salaried position um, to go and do the project, and I ended up taking I think it was about two weeks of my holidays and three weeks unpaid leave to be able to do that. And you know, and and, and I was fine with that. I mean, again, as I said, these these are passion projects, and. Uh, and I certainly, you know, in terms of money, I, I, I didn't get into gyms and from IT 
you know, for the money. Um, it, it's, it's about doing something that you know you're passionate about that maybe will will make an impact. And 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 so with that project, once I came back from Central Africa, I you know I was basically having to work on it in my evenings and my weekends, for, you know, for a few months. But you know, it was it, it was worth it. I, I would I would do it all again. It's it's you know I, these projects do get engaged uh, engaged with and and they seem to elicit you know a wonderful reaction. And so you know clearly there's an audience for it. It's just a, I think a case of trying to convince media outlets mm. of, of that fact. You've scratched your uh, early mid career itch at this point. Definitely, definitely, yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, it is a, it is a, I don't know if irony is the right word, but it is striking that without that first act doing more technical things, you would not be equipped to see things, to conceptualize things in, in mm-hmm. this way necessarily, let alone sort of execute them, obviously, but just to, as you say, storyboard and conceptualize what it looks like, I think, you know, you don't, yeah. you probably yeah. don't have one without the other, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, um, I feel like I must have sort of um, a minor form of attention deficit disorder because I, I get bored very quickly, which is partly the reason why I'm always trying to look for, you know, new new formats to use or new initiative techniques. You know, I get bored very quickly and very easily. So, you know, I'm always trying to think of ways to, sort of, you know, maybe use drone videography more or um, I'm keen to sort of experiment with, with audio and 360 illustrations to, to tell stories as well. So I'm always trying to sort of up the ante with every project. It, it would be interesting trying to do a sort of graphic novel where, you know, you, I'm using a bit more user-generated content as well, which is one idea I've been having with, with the Ghana story that I mentioned. Yeah, so I mean, there's, 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 there's always, I always have, you know, there's no shortage of crazy ideas that I have. It's just a case of having uh, the, the, the funding to, to be able to do them. Not so, not so crazy. <laughs> not so. Just because there isn't a uh, mainstream market demand uh, as yet does not does not make it crazy. You are listening to One Step Forward. We are all about stories of working for social good in hard times and tough places. My name is Ian Quick. Thanks for listening. And just a quick reminder, this podcast thing only really works by word of mouth. So if this episode resonated with you, please share with someone you know who might be interested. Rate us on iTunes or anywhere else for that matter. Join the conversation at onestepforward.fm. Thanks and bye for now.